Well, good morning. According to a recent poll or study by the American Pew Research Center, 80% of Americans believe in God. It's good news, isn't it? Here's the bad news. The bad news is that 33% of those, or almost 32% actually, um, believe in the deity that they believe in is not the God of the Bible, but some other higher power or spiritual force. And another 10% don't believe in any kind of power or, or uh, spiritual force. So the actual number is 56% of the people in our country who were surveyed believe in a God or the God of the Bible. And that number has continued to plummet year after year, decade after decade. And of course, believing in him is great. Um, it is a prerequisite to trusting and following him. But as we all know, believing in God is not the same as surrendering to him or trusting in him. Um, James, the brother of Jesus, made it very clear that believing in God is good, but that even demons believe and shudder, and obviously they're not saved. In fact, Jesus, we see in Luke 4 and Matthew 4, was tempted by Jesus, if you remember that situation. And when he was tempted by Jesus, uh, no, I said that wrong. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, sorry, when Satan tempted Jesus, put it that way, he quoted memorized scripture. So even memorizing scripture is not enough as well. There's a quote I want to begin today with that I want you to really think about by a man named A.W. Tozer who once said, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Think about that. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. He goes on to explain that um, by some kind of secret law of the soul, whatever your mental image of God is, you will tend to gravitate toward that in lots of ways. How you view God determines how you view yourself, how you pray, how you relate to others, how you perceive the future. Every relationship you have, every decision you make will be rooted in how you picture or view God in your mind. It is the most important thing about you. And here's what I want you all to know today. You're all wrong. We are all wrong. We are all off to some degree. We are a fallen people. We have a distorted picture of God. I have a distorted picture of God. We all do. The question is, how distorted? How far off are we? You see, your mental image of God is a montage, a montage of your early experiences, maybe of your family of origin issues, um, difficult times and pain that you have endured and gone through in your life that form your thoughts. Um, it's maybe based on things you've heard from me or from other pastors or a teacher or a parent or somebody else that you have read about or read books of and things like this, all mixed together with hopefully a lot of your own personal study of Scripture. But all these things over the years have brought you to today where you, as a finite being, have developed some sort of mental picture of an infinite being, God, and none of us can possibly grasp, at least not in a totally accurate way, who God truly is. Because again, He's infinite and we are not. 
Now, some of you probably just thought, wow, I've never actually even thought about who it is I'm praying to or what a picture of him would look like in my mind. And again, that's part of the problem because it impacts everything. Let me give you a couple of examples. Personally, I was lucky, or I suppose the more appropriate word would be blessed, but I honestly hesitate to say that I was blessed in the fact that I was raised in a wonderful and godly home because I know that God loves me, but He loves you too. He loves all of us. And when I say blessed, it almost makes me feel like, so He loves me more than He loves other people? No, I know that's not true. So I don't really know what word to use, but I was blessed or lucky, whatever you want to say, to be raised in a wonderful and godly home with parents who taught me as close to an accurate perspective of God as I think a human can. I mean, just fantastic in so many ways. They helped me understand who He is, that He is loving and holy and perfect, that, um, that He is kind and generous and forgiving, and that He loves me so very much that He sent His only Son to die a gruesome and painful death to pay for my sins. I mean, just things that I don't deserve that rock my world. But I, I look at all of that and I just am in great awe of who he is, but I'm also filled with gratitude for my parents, for what they sh have shown me and taught me. I'm thankful for all that. But now in contrast to me, some of you did not grow up in a Christian home. So you have a radically different perspective of God, or at least have at different points. Maybe you did grow up in a Christian home, but a different kind of Christian home, where you've got a bit of a skewed perspective. A lot of people have a perspective of God like he is some kind of big cosmic cop, like he's some big powerful person in the sky with a shiny badge, a blue suit, and a big club, right? You know, his arms are crossed, and he's tapping his toe, and he's just kind of watching you and looking at you like, just waiting for you to mess up, and then come bring the hammer, you know, because he's the killjoy, and, and anytime you're smiling or laughing or having fun, you must be messing up because he doesn't want that for you. A lot of people have thoughts like this in their eyes or in their minds about God. And if you have anything along that line in your mind, then you've probably always struggled to feel like you could ever measure up. And this becomes an even bigger problem when deep down in your heart you struggle to understand and basically do not believe in a God who, apart from anything else you've ever done, still looks at you and says, you are precious. I delight in you. I love you more than I can get into your mind. More than everything else I've created on this earth, I love you. I long to be with you, have a relationship with you. You are my son or my daughter. I would give anything for you be in relationship with me. In fact, I have given my best, which is my one and only son. I love you. I affirm you. And if that's not the God that, the picture of God that you have in your mind, then you probably create all kinds of different ways to stay on his good side, to try to perform for him so as to earn his hard-to-get approval that you feel like you can never measure up. For others of you, you're on the opposite end of the spectrum. You think of God more like like my grandma, you know, like, like all he ever wants to do is just give you as much dessert as you can possibly eat. That's what he's all about. You have no sense of God's white, hot, unapproachable holiness. The result of a picture of God like this is a Christian who does not see that 
Yes, God is loving and kind and gentle, but he is also, as God's word tells us, a consuming fire. And while his commands are for our benefit, we do not mess with, you do not mess with a holy God or treat him with anything short of the utmost respect and awe and reverence. You do not look at his commandments as options or suggestions. You bow in reverence to him. There is no casual interaction with him. He is not our homie. He's not our good old buddy or the man upstairs who, you know, has a nice big beard like Santa Claus and chuckles all the time and just kind of like my grandma, you know, if, if a flaw is ever seen in the, in the person, you know, like my grandma would always say, well, yeah, you know, Scotty may not be totally perfect, but he's one little step away from it and, oh, come on over here and sit on my lap and let me give you some more apple, you know, pudding or whatever. I mean, she, that's the way she looked at me and a lot of us have thoughts of God like that as if that's all he thinks about. But the truth is that God knows the truth and he cares about the truth and he tells us to be holy as he is holy. Even though he knows we are oh so flawed, he wants us to understand this concept of holiness. He knows the good, the bad, the ugly about us and yet he loves us anyway. He loves you Anyway, and we struggle to understand these two very uh, polar opposite kind of thoughts about God. This is the one God, though, whose name is so holy that to even utter it respectfully was not considered safe by the scribes who were given the task of copying God's holy word. So they would actually, I, I loved studying about this this week, they, they would actually write the four consonants of his name, Yahweh, the ancient Hebrew name of God given to mankind, um, when, when Moses, when mankind through Moses met God at the burning bush, and what do we call you? And, and he was told, call, them, call, call me the great I am. And anyway, that, this name Yahweh is used over six and a half thousand times in the Old Testament. And anyway, the scribes developed a practice of, of just writing the four consonants in this word Yahweh, so as to avoid using its full and most holy form because they felt as if they were still standing on holy ground, like Moses when he approached that burning bush and was told to take off his sandals because of the holiness of the ground he was, was standing on. And the scribes felt that when they were even just writing down the Scripture, even though they did not verbally say the name, or even write it out in its fullest form. They only used the four consonants. They still felt that they needed to go and ceremonially cleanse themselves, wash themselves again every time they wrote that name because of the utmost respect that they had for Almighty God. You see, our God is a holy God. John, in the last book of our Bible in Revelation, was allowed to foresee some amazing things in the future. And at one point he wrote in chapter 4, each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Will you say that with me? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and is to come. Let's say it again. 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Our God is a holy God. And yet he is also a God who can sit down, put a child on his lap, and hold that child, maybe bounce him on his knee and rub his hair or her hair and look at that child with, with a smile and with, a, with, 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 with gentleness and kindness in a way that that child has never known before. No matter how wonderful the parents of any child on this earth uh, gets to enjoy, there is nothing compared to the gentleness, the kindness, the beauty of Jesus loving a child. We have a God that is that gentle and kind and loving and approachable, and yet a God that is more holy than we can possibly imagine. And there are all sorts of other misconceptions and ideas about God, of course, not to mention even those who don't believe in Him at all. And even if you grew up like me in a well-balanced, God-honoring home, you're still finite and limited and flawed and mortal. And yet you are trying to grasp an infinite, limitless, flawless, immortal being. And to do so is impossible. So we are all off. Nobody can truly grasp who God is. Nobody has Him figured out. The most important journey you'll ever take in your life is when you pause and understand this and say, Dear God, oh Lord, God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, Lord, I want to know you, the real God. I want to know you, not just know about you. I want to know you, be in relationship with you, understand and grasp as much as you will allow me to understand and grasp. I don't want to just believe in a God that I've made up in my mind or that that I'm constantly thinking about, or maybe a God that's been passed around in certain Christian circles, or, or even the God that I just want to believe in. Lord, I want to know the real God, who you truly are, whether it's comfortable or not, whether it matches what mom and dad or previous pastor or good friend or favorite author tell me. I want to know the real God. I want to see you for who you are, Lord. You see, our goal should not just be to learn about God. Our goal should be to know God. There's night and day difference between the knowledge about someone and the knowledge of someone. I mean, you can go to the library or Wikipedia and learn a lot about someone, but to truly know them is an intimate thing, and it requires an intimate relationship. And to truly know God should be our goal. And to know Him is to love Him. There's nothing better there's nothing more satisfying or rewarding or, or rich or beautiful than to know Almighty God. That's what I want for all of us. That's what I want for me, for all of us. That's what we're going to try to do over this next seven weeks as we look at this series together where we begin looking at some of the key attributes of God, things that are often misunderstood about Him but that are so central and so essential. But as we do, there are some ground rules that I want to lay before you that I assure you, if you fail to understand these, you probably will fail to ever grasp really much of any of the essence of what we're going to talk about over the next seven weeks. So maybe if you fill in the blanks or just think through these either way, but let me, let me share with you three facts about God you need to be aware of. One is this. Number one, God is not like you. 
uh, he's not like you. I know it's shocking, but he's not like you. Our tendency is to think of or imagine the best version of a human we can think of. You know, the, you know, the most holy or most amazing or generous and kind and all, all these things about a person that we can imagine. Think of that person and then picture that times 10 or times 100 or a million or whatever and think that must be what God is like. I'm telling you, if that's where you're at, that's not true. It's wrong. That's not at all what God is like. You see, there are two categories you need to understand. Everything falls into one of two categories. In one category, you have you and me and everyone else on the earth, all the mountains and valleys and rivers and oceans and all the animals that live in and on and all of these things. And, and then that's just scratching the surface because that's just all that we know on earth. Then you add to that all that is up there in outer space. Do you know, I, I loved reading about this this week. It kind of blew my mind, but Scientists now estimate that there are about 100 billion planets in our Milky Way galaxy. 100 billion planets. That's really a number bigger than what we can grasp. But 100 billion planets or so in our, in our solar system. But guess what? On a conservative level, they estimate that there are at least, and maybe a lot more, but at least 200 billion more galaxies with 100 billion planets or so in each one of them. And that's in the known universe. That supposes that we see the end of the universe, or in it, in it we see its entirety. I mean, in other words, there is vastness out there that we can't even begin with the greatest of scientists and telescopes and all that to even begin to understand. And here's what I want you to understand. There are two categories. One is all of this. Everything on this earth and everything up there, everything that is created, all the matter in the universe, and then there's the creator of all of this. Two very different categories. Yes, we are created in God's image, but that does not mean we are like Him. That does not mean He is like us in this sense. He is in a whole different category. He is a whole nother thing. This concept is the word holy which is what God is. It means He is separate. He is a cut above. He is not like us. And yet every religion, including us Bible followers, Christian people, we tend to lean toward wanting to imagine God somehow like us. Because if we can do that, we can wrap our arms more around Him or our minds around Him, and we can control Him. We can manage Him. We can understand the, un the unimaginable. Listen to what God said through Isaiah. You see, this, was not, this is not a new problem. This is mankind's tendency throughout all of human history. And God addressed this issue in Isaiah chapter 40. He said, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Can we do something? Imagine we're outside and we're looking at Pikes Peak. Will you, will you close your eyes? We're looking at Pikes Peak. And you're looking at the beauty of all that is out there. And then, then it all, you know, time lapse, things go quickly. And all of a sudden, it's the perfect night and it's dark. And there's no moon today or night. And, and uh, we're able to see the stars in all their glory. And then we hear God say, who created all of these? Isaiah says, he who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each one of them by name. Let me tell you this. You know, we only have 172,000 or so words 
in our English language. 172,000 words. That's a lot of words. But God names all 100 billion stars, each one of them by name, and that's not counting the 100 billion stars in each of the other 200 billion galaxies, which is a number beyond our imagination. He has words for all of those. He knows all of our words and, of course, massive amounts of everything else beyond that. Isaiah continues, because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them, these stars, not one of them is missing. So why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, unlike us, and his understanding no one can fathom. We cannot grasp who God is. Another favorite passage from the New Testament is Romans chapter 11. I love it. Um, the Apostle Paul was talking about the sovereignty of God. It's a word we're going to look at in a couple of weeks, by the way. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And in the crescendo of this chapter of this great book, Romans 11, he ends with a doxology. Here's how he says it. God says through Paul these words. He says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given God, given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Wow. Have you ever thought, I love what's on the screen right now. Have you ever thought about that? That everything in all the world is from him and through him and to him. That's why he deserves all the glory. Everything, everything, and that leaves out nothing. And so I want you to know this morning that God is not like you. Yes, we are created in his image, but we are in a whole different category. He is in a whole different category. He is, an, he is unimaginably beyond us, bigger, more omnipotent, more powerful than we can possibly imagine. Similarly, number two would be this. Left to ourselves, we tend to reduce God to manageable terms. As part of the human race, I tend, you probably do as well, we tend to, to want to, a God that we can see, a God that we can, in a sense, control, a God that we can tame and manipulate, that we can put in a box and comprehend, understand, anticipate, all these things. Ancient religions used old totems like a moon or the stars or an image of a lion or a bear or some other animal for a god. There are lots and lots of examples of people in Scripture doing these things. It's recorded for us to read. But the story of Israelites, God's own people doing this also is there as well. They created a golden calf to worship when Moses, from their perspective, took too long up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. Well, where's Moses? Hey, maybe he's never coming back. We need a God that we can have in, meaning, in uh, manageable terms so that we can grasp and understand and all that. So they melted all the gold they had and created a golden calf to worship. And that is even after they had just seen the parting of the Red Sea and the miracles of the ten plagues and how God used all of that to break the hardened heart of Pharaoh and and the 400 years of captivity, and the people were allowed to leave, and yet shortly thereafter, like, ah, well, what's he done for me lately? 
We need a golden calf to worship. Hinduism is a more modern example of this. I listened to one of the most passionate and amazing sermons, convicting sermons I've heard in a long time this week when I just happened to coincidentally turn, tune in to uh, a chapel service that Ethan is a part of out at Cedarville University where he's studying linguistics. And um, a pastor was brought in from India who grew up with an Islamic past, uh, was a street child and rescued by somebody and raised and introduced to Jesus and now is totally focused on the masses of people in India um, that are living and dying without Jesus. And as he passionately talked about our one true God and how he loves and serves him with reckless abandon to you know, where he's had to at times tell his children, Daddy may not come home today. You need to understand this and be prepared because of the dangers that are involved with his witnessing to the people of his country. Anyway, he talked about Hinduism now has over, and I did not know this, but over 33 million gods, 33 million gods to pick from. You see, they've never had enough. They never have gotten to a place where things seem just quite right, so they keep inventing, creating more and more gods in search of the one true God. Do you know this? The largest event, spiritual event or, or religious event in history, in all of human history, is taking place right now. The largest religious event in history. It is in India, in the Hindu relationship or, or religion. Over 110 million people over a six-week period with a festival that they're doing are flocking to the Ganges River in India to wash away their sins. That's their perspective, to wash away their sins by bathing in the frigid and filthy waters of that river. They are desperately seeking God, just not the right God. The largest religious gathering of people in the history of the world right now. There are so many stories about this kind of thing in the Bible as well. <clears throat> I used to read that and think, what is wrong with those people? Why, did they, why, why would they worship a false god? I would never do that. You know, I, I've never come home and said, hey, honey, good to see you. Um, give me just a minute. I need to go back here to the other part of the house and just take a few minutes and bow down to that idol that we keep back there. I've never done that. Have you done that? Nobody, I don't know people that do that. And I've thought, you know, kind of smugly, boy, I, I would never have been so stupid as all those people in the Bible. And yet then I think, wait a minute. Maybe I have done that. Not exactly in that way. But I've created idols. I've worshipped idols. Maybe not intentionally or even consciously. But I have. Idols like, and maybe you can relate to this, maybe idols like success or money, or security, or, uh, or family, or children, um, career, sex, sports, comfort, happiness. The list can go on and on. All kinds of good Christian people do it all the time without even realizing it. I believe that's what happened to Abraham. There's an incredible story. I wish we had more time to look at it. But God had promised Abraham and Sarah a son and promised that through that son he would bless them beyond measure and that their descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. But they didn't have that son. They were not blessed with that son until they were 90 and 100 years old respectively. And they were amazed. They were blown away. They were shocked. They were 
grateful, and they were in danger. They were in danger. You see, think about it. What would you do if you had to wait nearly 100 years for the most important and most focused on and biggest blessing of your life? Do you think maybe, just maybe, you might accidentally over-prioritize it? And maybe might accidentally, without realizing it even, worship it? Well, as Isaac grew into a young teenager, I think that might have been what was happening. And that might be why God said to Abraham, the story is incredible. You can read it in Genesis 17 if you want. Um, many of you probably know the story. But at one point God said, Abraham, that one thing that you love so much, that I promised to do all these great things through, that you and Sarah have waited so long and are now so grateful for that one thing, your son Isaac, I want you to bring him, take him up there to that mountain and sacrifice him, a human sacrifice. I mean, it's one of the most hard to wrap your minds around stories in all of Scripture. And again, if you know the story, you know that at the last second, God stopped Abraham from doing it. It's a very, it's a very emotional and moving story. But as you think about it, I, I would encourage you to think about it from God's perspective. Why did he do that? I don't know for sure, but I think it's because God did not want Abraham, just like he does not want you or I, to put anything before him. Not anything. Nothing should ever come before us, before God in our relationship with him. Let me tell you this. Before your head hits the pillow tonight, I want to encourage you to ask yourself a tough question. I want you to lie there in bed and ponder and think about this. And ask God to reveal to you the truth. And then really just listen. But ask yourself, ask God to reveal to you, do I have any Isaacs in my life? A lot of times they're good things. They in and of themselves are not bad. Isaac was not bad. He was not a problem in that he was problematic. These idols like Isaac are usually good things. Maybe it's a good job. Maybe it's a good marriage, a, a great family. Heck, it can even be ministry. I've been there. I know that. Good things. You see, but God does not want anything, anything to come between him and us. And anything that does is an idol. That thing, that person, that goal, whatever it might be, if it becomes something that is more important to you than Almighty God himself, then there is a problem, and you are worshiping a false god, an idol. Something we need to all be very careful with. Number three would be this, things to learn and understand about God. There's ground rules for this series that, we'll start, that we're starting today. That is that God can only be known as much as He reveals Himself to us. Psalm 19 tells us, The heavens declare, that the, declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. Romans chapter 1 talk about similar things. The theologians would call this general revelation. You see, God can and does speak to us, all mankind, through nature, through, through the things that He has created in that way. But in a more specific way, He talks to us, He reveals Himself to us through His holy and perfect Word. There's so much in Scripture about that. Psalms 19, 119 tells us His Word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Romans 10 tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Jesus Himself said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Do you know it? 
by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And 2 Timothy 3 tells us all Scripture, all of this is God-breathed. In other words, the Holy Spirit breathed life into it. Therefore, it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we can be thoroughly prepared for all that God has before us. And, and Hebrews 4 tells us the Word of God is living and active. It's God-breathed, and therefore that's how it's living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, to the point that it penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Listen, friends, I, I do my best to preach good sermons, God-honoring as perfect as I possibly can sermons, but I'm still just a man. I am fallible. I am, in, I am not inerrant. I am not infallible. And as I often tell you, let me tell you again, you need to test what I or any and everybody else that you would have conversation with or that you would read or listen to or value. You need to test what every such person says against God's Word. Hold it up to the light of God's holy Word. And to that end, we need to study, memorize, and meditate, digest, value, crave, pray that God helps us to crave and, 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 and love and cherish and treasure His Holy Word, study His Holy Word. You see, God can only reveal to us, or chooses to only reveal to us as much as we understand of Him th through His Holy Word. It's through His Holy Word that He speaks to us more than anything else. So, I want to encourage you, not just today, but all the time, I try to bring it up all the time, to make sure that you have an appetite, that you pray that God gives you an appetite for His Word, that you eat, breathe, sleep it. And as you do, let me add this piece to it, as you do, look for Jesus. Look for Jesus because to know Jesus is to know the Father. Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he goes on. He's not done. The very next sentence, he says, if you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. So you want to know God? You want to know the real God? Does anybody in the room want to know the real God? Then we need to look to Jesus. In fact, I tell people oftentimes when, they wanting, when they're wanting to get into God's Word, hey, pastor, help me understand. Where, where should I start? Where should I read? There, there's really no wrong way to read the Bible, but I always encourage people, don't get too far away from the Gospels. I usually encourage people to start there, but don't ever get too far away from the Gospels because to know Jesus is to know the Father. Study the red letters, the writing, the words, the perspective of Jesus. Listen, as we will talk about in so much more detail next week, God is good. Do you believe that? God is good. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week, but He is so very good. And when you get to know the real God, you understand, and the depth of words like this take on a deeper meaning. When He said, for I know the plans I have for you. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen. He's talking about an intimate, beautiful relationship but he says, you want to know how you get there? You will seek me and find me when you, you want to know how you're going to seek me and find me? It's when you seek me with all your heart. Not with some of your heart, not even with most of your heart, with all of your heart. As we close today, let's pause and go back to the very first question that I ask you. What comes to mind when you think about God? 
Because I think A.W. Tozer was right, spot on right, that what we think about, what comes to our mind when we think about God truly is the most important thing about us. We all have a distorted image because we're all fallible. We cannot fully grasp an infinite being. But together, as we study God's attributes by looking into His holy word and perfect, loving word, as we refuse to reduce Him to something manageable and we stop trying to control Him and we open up ourselves and we say, Oh, dear God, forgive me for going down those paths and help me to know the real God with no bias, with with no ulterior motives, but with just a pursuit of truth. I want to know you for who you really are. Whether it's comfortable or not, Lord, I want to know the real God. As we go down that path, I promise you, God is going to reveal himself to you and to me in a more deep and rich way. If we go there together over the next six weeks, or as we do, I promise you, you're going to develop new eyes for countless ways that his goodness, next week's topic, his goodness, his sovereignty, his holiness, his wisdom, his justice, his love, and his faithfulness are more evident and more significant in our lives every single day than what we probably grasp or can ever really grasp. Let me tell you this, there is nothing, and I've said it before, but let me say it again as we close. There is nothing more precious and more rewarding and more valuable and more significant and life-changing than to know the real God. Do you want to know Him? Will you stand with me? We're going to sing and we're going to close by singing a song, but let me lead us in prayer as we do. Lord God, as we stand in awe of you as we are about to sing. Lord God, we want to know the real God. We want to to let you speak to us as you would want. So Lord, empty us. Help us to allow you to empty us of anything that would ever come between us and you that would somehow pollute our understanding of you and lead us down paths that are not what you want. Lord, help us to, in every possible way, be open, to be sponge-like, to be completely moldable before you and let you speak to us. Lord, if there be somebody here today who says, that's enough, I know enough to say that I'm not where I need to be, and I want to give my life. I want to surrender right here, right now. I, I know I have a lot to learn, but I want to surrender right now. Lord, would you lay that on that person's heart? he or her heart right here, right now. If there are others who need to repent of something that they know has come between them, that has been an idol, has been like an Isaac in their life, Lord, would you allow them also to recognize their need to come and to lay that down before you and trust you. But Lord, we want to stand in awe of you and worship you. That is our prayer. And all God's people together said, amen. Let's worship and let's honor you.